All right. Good morning, everybody. And happy Resurrection Sunday. Happy Easter. It's good to see you. Thank you, Zach, for reading that classic Easter text. The beheading, the dancing is tempting to go to a different route. But this is where the Lord has us as we march through Mark. And so I think there's some really good um, gospel implications that we'll be able to draw out. So I'm grateful we're in this text. But I will say it was a challenge. So um, we are, as many of you know, we're a new church in Westerville. And um, if you are visiting us this morning, just some housekeeping. The bathrooms are right back there. Um, the kids' ministries in the back. We ask that you don't go back there unless you do obviously have a kid. Um, but as we get going here, <clears throat> the title of the sermon is The Cost of Discipleship. And many of you may already know where we're going with this. But on February 4th, 1906, a man by the name of Dietrich was born in Breslau, Germany. He was born to a lovely young couple named Karl and Paula. And at a young age, Dietrich wanted to become a minister. And so his parents decided to encourage that, and they sent him off to get a theological education. And he ended up getting his doctorate of theology at the University of Berlin. And from there, he spent time, he went, from there, he went to New York and spent time continuing his theological education. And all while that is going on, a man by the name of Adolf Hitler is rising to power in Germany. And Dietrich feels this tension because while Hitler and the Nazi regime begin to take power and begin to um, wreak havoc, Dietrich feels this tension that one of two things has to happen. And he writes about this. He says that either one, Germany succeeds in their pursuit of world domination and triumph over Christian values and the Christian way of living and a Christian worldview. He says, or Germany is defeated and his home, the country that he loves, and his neighbors and countrymen are left in shambles. So either there's this tension between the Christian worldview that Dietrich has been pursuing and trying to grow in and encourage others to do the same, or his home country. One of those are going to have to give because they're going in different directions. And he feels this tension, and he recognized that there was a cost to this pursuit of discipleship. And in 1937, all the while, he's now scheming against Hitler because he recognizes that the decision that needs to be made is one that is against his country. If He's going to be faithful to his Lord. And so he's scheming against Hitler. And in 1937, after writing several other things against the Nazi regime and the Gestapo, in 1937, he writes the book, The Cost of Discipleship. That's where we get the sermon title. I'm not a terribly creative guy. So I got it straight from that book. And in that book, he has this famous line that says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. In 1943, he wrote that book in 37. In 1943, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was arrested. And in 1945, he was publicly executed by hanging. Happy Easter. Welcome for that encouraging story. But Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, wrote this book, The Cost of Discipleship. And just one month before the Nazi regime fell, 
he paid that cost in full. He paid it with his life. He never got to see the Nazi regime fall. He was one month away. Never got to see it fall. He knew that there was a cost to pay. He continued to pursue righteousness. He continued to pursue faithfulness. And he ended up paying that cost and didn't get to see the Nazi regime fall in this lifetime. Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer proclaimed this message of this cost of discipleship. And that's, that's not a terribly popular message today, if we're just honest. The number one best-selling New York Times book in this area, Your Best Life Now. It's a religious book. I don't want to say it's a Christian book because I'm not convinced that it is because there is a cost to discipleship. And so it's easy to, to tell our society, tell our neighbors, hey, if you follow Jesus, you'll get what you want. If you follow Jesus, what, what do you want? You want fill in the blank. You want a nice car. You want health. You want success. Whatever those things are, follow Jesus, you can get it. That's not the message of Bonhoeffer, and that's not the message of of scripture. And so there is this tension of, is there a cost to discipleship or will it get you everything you ever wanted? And we're going to walk through that this morning. I'm going to argue that there is a cost to following Jesus and that because, as we celebrate on this Easter Sunday, because Jesus rose from the grave, because he rose from the tomb, we can pursue righteousness and pursue faithfulness no matter what the cost is because ultimately the victory is in Christ. Because he rose, we can pursue righteousness with little concern about the cost. And I'll unpack that as we go. And Lord willing, as we look at this text, um, it will, if, we, if we grasp what's there, if I, if I preach clearly, Lord willing, uh, we will see that if we, if we grab this, it'll allow us to enjoy God's good gifts in godly ways, because I want to be careful, because there's that tension that I put there, the cost of discipleship or getting everything you want. Success is not a bad thing. But if you're using Jesus to get success, to get fill in the blank, whatever that is, then it is. And so this morning, we're in Mark. We've continued through Mark. And Mark is the first of four Gospels written. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels in the canon. Mark was the first one written, written in the 50s or 60s AD by a man named John Mark. He was writing to the church in Rome. And the theme throughout is God restoring his wayward people. So we've gone astray. God's people had gone astray. And throughout Mark, we see this consistent theme of God restoring, bringing back his wayward people. So if we grasp this, I think it'll help us to hold loosely onto the things of the world. I think it'll help us enjoy the things that God has blessed us with in good and godly ways. I think it'll embolden us to take gospel risk because the call on the Christian is to come and die. There's some risk involved there. I think it will embolden us to do that. And then further, I think it'll prepare us for persecution. As Jesus promised us, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. So we are, we are promised some form or fashion of persecution. And so last week, we saw in verses 1 through 6, no, excuse me, six th- or 7 through 13, we saw the 12 being sent out. It said disciple is a follower, and an apostle is one who is sent out. So we see the 12 now be sent out. And this is the first time they've been sent out. 
Previously, it was just that spectator sport. Wow, Jesus is doing amazing miracles. This is really cool to watch. It's amazing. Best entertainment you can get. Now, the 12, who I'm sure feel ill-equipped, Jesus says, go out two by two. And so they go. And then squeezed in the middle of them being sent and them returning is this passage that seems maybe a little bit random of John the Baptist. Throughout Mark, there are only two passages that are explicitly not about Jesus. This is one of them. So the other one was in chapter one. So this is the other one where Mark is trying to make a very clear explanation of Jesus is the way in which God restores his wayward people. And he does that by focusing a ton on Christ, rightfully so. But now this passage, the focus seems to be transitioned to John the Baptist. So, why is it put here? Why is it put right after the 12 being sent out and right before the 12 coming back? Jesus is making a point. God is making a point. The author here is making a point about what it looks like to go. So there are four points that I'd like us to see. You can see it on your bulletin. But it's righteousness misunderstood, righteousness despised, righteousness persecuted, and righteousness buried. So we will talk about each of those. But before we jump into them, let's pray. Father, we come before you and we already just want to say thank you for the empty tomb. I want to say thank you for your kindness to provide salvation for those who would call in the name of Jesus. And we pray that as we look at this text, that we would see Jesus more clearly. We pray that, Holy Spirit, you would give us eyes to see what's in the text. Give us ears to hear. Give us humble and softened hearts to repent where we need to repent. We recognize that we're fallen creatures in need of a Savior. Protect us from thinking that we do not need a Savior. Lord, wherever this gospel is proclaimed, we pray for your blessing. Think of Cornerstone Community Church here in Westerville, Story Presbyterian Church, Summit Baptist Church, Good Shepherd Bible Church. Lord, thank you for the brothers and sisters there who are proclaiming the good news. Thank you for the way that they do that in word and deed. We pray that this morning, as our nation observes Resurrection Sunday, that the gospel would go forth. We ask that it would do that here at Citizens. We praise you. We ask for your help this morning in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So, four points. First one is righteousness misunderstood. And so, right from the get-go, we see this man. King Herod, okay, and he's, the name of Jesus has gotten to him, and he's wondering, who is this? And people are saying, well, he's John the Baptist, resurrected, which really would have freaked Herod out, because the understanding in that time was that if somebody was resurrected, then it was them coming back to bring about judgment on their enemies. And Herod would have been public enemy number one for John the Baptist, and We've already read about that, but we'll get into that even more as we go. And so when he asked who this is, they say, well, people say it's John the Baptist resurrected. So 
and that is going to cause Herod to sweat. But then maybe just to kind of ease his concerns, they say, well, other, others say Elijah. Others say a prophet. Uh, could, be, could be one of those. And Herod knows, or he thinks he knows. He's absolutely convinced. You see in verse 16, John, the one I beheaded, has been raised. And so his guilt is already revealed because he's saying, John, the one I beheaded, the one whose life I ended. And so before we dive more into that story, we need to understand that Jesus, he was misunderstood here. Who is he? John the Baptist, Elijah, prophets, misunderstood. But who he really is, is he's greater than all three of those guesses. John the Baptist was a forerunner to Jesus. He's supposed to come to pave the way, to make straight the paths, so that when Jesus came, that the people would be ready to hear the message. And Elijah was one who fought against the false gods of his time, most famously against the false god of Baal, and the priests of Baal. And the prophets, they spoke on behalf of God. They gave God's words to God's people. Now, Jesus is greater than Elijah because he is fighting against false gods in more miraculous ways. I mean, he's bringing people back to life. He's healing people. He's expressing authority over not only the spiritual realm, but also the physical realm. And he's doing all kinds of amazing things. So he's, he's more impressive than Elijah. And the prophets, they spoke on behalf of God. They gave God's words to God's people. Jesus is the word made flesh. Jesus is God. So greater than the, the prophets. However, the people don't quite understand who he is because they've actually never seen anything like Jesus before. He's perfectly righteous. They've never seen that. It's completely unrecognizable to them. And so they're like, we, we don't really know who this guy is. A lot of people are saying John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Some say the prophets. Like this guy, we, we've never seen anything like it. So he's misunderstood. And, and something for us to to recognize as we are here and as we go out into our respective workplaces and our respective domains is that we will be misunderstood. We absolutely will be. If you lovingly, if you faithfully call people to repentance, there's a chance that you could be seen as hateful. If you pursue holiness, you, you could be seen as legalistic. If you proclaim salvation in Christ alone, you may be deemed narrow-minded. And if you submit to, to God's design about marriage, sexuality, the role of men and women, you could easily be seen as intolerant. Now, I want to clarify, that doesn't mean that we retreat from society, okay? Fin Finley misunderstands me all the time. So, hey, you got to do this and do it now. She seems to think that now means in five to ten minutes. Say, hey, the answer is no. She seems to think that that means yes, Okay doesn't mean that I pull back from her and stop trying to engage with her. However, I recognize it's probably going to take a little bit more effort on my end to, to get through to Finley, especially recently. Um, but with that said, with the understanding that we're going to be misunderstood, it does not mean that we stop trying. We still proclaim the good news. In fact, what it should do is it should humbly root us even more in our convictions. And now notice, I said, I said humbly root us. Don't be the, the jerk who just wants to beat people over the head. But it should humbly root us 
in our convictions, even if that means we'll be misunderstood, even if that means we'll be despised, which leads us into our second point where we see righteousness is despised. We see this in verses 17 through 20. Now, I'm not going to read those verses yet, but it starts off with Herod. Okay, so let's get a little bit of background into who this Herod guy is, because he's a big part of this story. And so Herod, anybody here heard of Herod the Great? Okay, pretty notorious dude, around the time when Jesus was born. Herod Antipas, in this passage, is one of the four sons of Herod the Great. Okay, he had four sons who ruled over his kingdom. And so even though it calls him King Herod here, he actually technically wasn't a king. He was a tetrarch, as we see in other passages of Scripture, which a tetrarch is literally a ruler of a fourth. Tetra is Greek word for four. So if you want an easy way to remember that, anybody in here play Tetris? Okay, it's those little shapes that fall down. You got to get them in the spot, right? Each of those are made of four blocks, form different shapes. So Herod is a tetrarch. He's a ruler of the fourth. However, he's called king for a couple of reasons. One, he's, he's a ruler. He basically functions as a king. However, he also really, really wanted the title king. His dad had it. He knows that there's an added layer of respectability and authority that seems to come out of it. He really wanted that title. So what he did was he consistently petitioned Caesar, say, hey, could you just, could you just call me king? Can I get that title? And it was consistently denied to him. And eventually it led to him being banished to an island with Herodias for them to rule over basically nothing. But he was not actually a king. He was a tetrarch. So why would this guy, Herod, why would he despise Jesus? I mean, he's, he's the, the ruler of this given plot of this given region, right? Why would he despise Jesus? Well, excuse me, John. Why would he despise John? And so Herod despises John because John proclaimed that Herod was in the wrong for marrying Herodias. Okay, Herodias was Herod's um, brother's wife. So his brother Philip was married to Herodias. And then Herod and Herodias began an adulterous affair. And in order for Herod to marry Herodias, he needed to divorce his previous wife. And so he divorced his previous wife, bringing shame to her to marry Herodias, which in turn also brought shame to Philip. Now, this was a problem for at least two reasons. One, it's an adulterous relationship. So you have the problem of adultery, right? And then the second reason is Jewish law actually prohibited, believe it or not, this is actually more obvious than anything, prohibited sexual relations with your brother's wife while he was still alive. Okay? Good law to have. Now, had he been dead, there was the kinsman redeemer. But Philip was not dead. And so Herod just stole his wife. So we have the problem of adultery. We have the problem of breaking the Jewish law. We see this in Leviticus 20, 21. And we have the problem of stealing. He, he stole from his brother, took what was not his. And so John continuously saying, like, hey, you're in the wrong, is not terribly comfortable for Herod. Right? Someone points something out in your life, like, hey, concerned, seems like, this is not something that would please God. Or, hey, think you're in the wrong here. That's not a good thing to hear. And Herod did not respond well 
to it. So a question for us is when someone calls us, someone points out sin in our life, how do we tend to respond? Do we respond like Herod or Herodias, which we're getting into, how she responded? But the way that we respond to a brother or sister pointing out areas that they might be concerned in tells a lot about our heart and our position toward our Savior. And so Herod isn't a huge fan of John. And now his wife, Herodias, isn't a huge fan, which would seem a little bit strange because if Herod is the ruler of the area and he goes through great lengths to marry Herodias, it would seem like, hey, he's, he's the final say. It's not a big deal if, if this John guy doesn't like our marriage. Like, who cares? Well, her conscience kind of brought that up. There's a reason why she might be a little bit concerned and upset that this guy is saying what she feels but doesn't want to be made known. But then additionally, she, Herod continuously tried to become king. Part of the reason is because Herodias really wanted him to become king. She was consistently, historians have pointed out, she consistently um, tried to push him to ask Caesar to, to be king now. Why? Well, if, if Herod becomes king and you're married to the king, what's that make you? Makes you the queen. So she wanted some authority and some power that came along with that title as well. And so to repent of that marriage, if John, this guy who's doing amazing things and who is saying that, hey, their marriage is a sham, their marriage is, is not godly, we actually encourage you guys not to, to embrace this form of, of marriage where one divorces the other. John's proclaiming against it. He's preaching against it. And she, if she were to repent ends up losing the opportunity to become queen. So if she turns from that sin, if she goes away from it and reconciles to her husband, reconciles, then she's going to lose the opportunity to become queen. So she had something to lose with repentance. There's a cost there. And as we go about this Christian life, we will find that there are times when repentance is costly. I encourage you to bear that cost because it is worth it as we will continue to see. So what happened? Herod has John arrested. He has him arrested and Herodias um, wanted to kill John, but she couldn't. Why? Verse 20, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. She couldn't kill him because Herod is living in this tension of, okay, I can, I can arrest John so he doesn't speak publicly anymore about my sham of marriage, but I'm not going to kill him because I actually I like listening to him and I know he's a righteous man, I know he's a holy man, so my conscience quite, doesn't quite allow me to end this guy's life. And R.C. Sproul, when he talks about us having a conscience, he says, the single greatest restraint on evil that God has placed in this world is conscience. Now, it doesn't mean that we trust our conscience 100% because our, our sin has caused our conscience to be calloused and to be seared. But Sproul points out that the greatest restraint of evil in this world is the conscience that God has put in us. The recognition that the, the law has been written, has been placed inside of us. Romans 1.18 talks about how we try to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Have you ever taken a basketball and tried to hold it underwater? Maybe you guys have been in pools where it's like that basketball hoop. Try to hold that thing underwater for a while. You can do it. It's possible. But you have to actively keep that basketball underwater. 
as soon as you let go, rises right back up. So we naturally have this conscience that will point out what is pleasing to God and what's not pleasing to God. Not, not perfectly because we have a calloused conscience, so we can't trust it wholeheartedly. That's why it's so important for us to be in the Word. But in our fallen state, we try to suppress. We try to suppress that. So Herodias, because her conscience testified against her, because Herod's conscience testified against him, he wasn't ready to kill John, so Herodias continuously waited. And she waited for the opportune time, the perfect time. She was scheming the whole way. And in verse 21, she gets that opportune time where we now see righteousness persecuted. So verse 21, look with me if you would there. It says this, an opportune time came on his birthday, Herod's birthday. Now, Herodias had been patient. She knows her husband well. She knows his weaknesses. She knows his tendencies. She knows that he cares a lot about his reputation. He, he really wants to become king. She really wants him to become king. And if he looks bad publicly, then it's going to impact that opportunity to become king. So he doesn't want to be seen as soft. He doesn't want to be seen as weak. And so now the scene is set where he has a birthday and Herodias sends her daughter in, Herod's stepdaughter. And at this party, we see, verse 21, when Herod gave a banquet for his nobles, military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. So the cultural elites are at this party. This is the, the party of the year, each year in this region. If you are invited to Herod's birthday party, then you are somebody. And so these people, the cultural elites, are all there. And so there's likely um, a lot of food, decadent food, decadent wine. There's entertainment. And given Herod's reputation, given Herod's character, the entertainment was most likely not good, clean family fun. Okay, So this is immoral entertainment, to say it, to say it as lightly as I can. So Herodias sends in her stepdaughter, or her daughter, Herod's stepdaughter, to dance for these men. Now, you can use your imagination, but this wasn't uh, the Macarena, okay? <laughs> this was a different style of dancing, sensuous dancing. And Herod and his guests are very pleased. That's what the text says. They were very pleased. The king said to her, ask me whatever you want. He's speaking to Herod's daughter, or Herodias' daughter. He says, you, you've pleased my guests. These are the cultural elites. These are the people that I need to impress to get what I want, to be king. You have done a great job in entertaining them. Ask whatever you want. You can have whatever you want, up to half my kingdom, which shouldn't be seen as literal. It's a, it's a figure of speech that would be made then. But it says, basically, whatever you want, I'll give to you. And so she goes to her mother, says, what should I ask for? And Herodias, her plan, unfolding perfectly, says, John the Baptist's head. Ask for his head. 
been trying to find an opportunity to keep this man quiet. And even though he's in prison, she still feels this, her consciousness coming up, saying what you're doing is not right. And so she tries this last effort to silence that consciousness. So she says, John the Baptist head. Now Herod is in this really difficult position. He's got a decision to make. Is he going to protect this righteous man? Is he going to, to fear God, so to speak? Or is he going to fear man? He's got the cultural elites around him and his response is that he is deeply distressed because of his oaths and the guest. It's an important part there, the guest. So he made a promise, and he's made the promise in front of important people. And so he's deeply distressed. Now, if he doesn't keep this oath, he's seen as one of two things. He's either unwilling and therefore dishonest. He just told her, ask whatever you want. I can give it to you. I'm a powerful man. And if she says, I want this, and he says, well, actually not that, then he looks dishonest. And he either looks unwilling to go through with the request or unable and therefore weak and not fit to be a king, not as powerful as he likes to put on. And so decision time for Herod. And for us, every day we have these decisions to are we going to please man or are we going to please God? We constantly have these decisions set before us, and we can either stand for righteousness or we can please man. We can please the cultural elites. We can please those who have expectations on us that may be contrary to what God has called us to. So, verse 27, what does Herod do? It says that he immediately sent for an executioner and commanded him to bring John's head. So Herod succumbs to the pressure of the cultural elites. He succumbs to the plan of his wife, and John is beheaded. He's executed. And John's life, if we're looking at the text, John's life was ended because he insisted on righteousness, even to the point of it costing him his life. He boldly proclaimed righteousness to the king, and it caused it cost him imprisonment, and then it cost him his life. And we see his disciples being faithful in verse 29, that when they heard about it, they came and removed his corpse and placed it in a tomb. They give him a proper burial. They bury him in a tomb. Now, Herod's action, it buried righteousness, but it did it on two fronts. It buried the righteous man, John, ended his life, this proclaimer of righteousness, this righteous man, and John was buried. But then also any opportunity for Herod to make a righteous decision in that moment was also buried. So righteousness is buried in this decision by Herod. John's faithfulness and his righteousness cost him his life. And, and that's really the point of the text here. So we've been kind of going through, offering a lot of commentary on the text, but this is the point of this passage. This is why it was placed or right after the commissioning of the 12 and right before the 12 come back. This message that Mark is getting through to his readers is that if you are sent out, it may cost you your life. It may cost you your career. It may cost you relationships. 
may cost you social capital. It may cost you everything. That is what this passage is getting at. It's sandwich. There's this term called Markin sandwiches. Mark, the author of this book, does these things where his style of writing is he starts something, then he goes off on a tangent, says, okay, I want to talk about this, then he comes back to something. So there's this sandwich where the, the topic is over here, and then there's this middle thing that's trying to make a point that helps, helps bring more color to this other thing. And so Mark saying, hey, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're sent. And in the same breath, he says, if you're sent, it could cost you everything. Remember Bonhoeffer's quote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And John was faithful to that call. And Chris Ostom, he was a church father in the 4th and 5th century, um, he wrote this about this passage. He said, Herod Antipas cut off the head, but he did not cut off the voice. He said he curbed the tongue, but he did not curb the accusation. John's story continues to go out. We are literally here today talking about Herod's illegitimate marriage 2,000 years later. John was not silenced. His body may have been killed. However, the story goes on. His voice is still going out. And John, this righteous man, was despised by Herod, by Herodias. He was despised by those who were in power. He was persecuted and ultimately killed by a torn ruler who didn't really want to kill him, but he succumbed to the outside pressures. And then he was buried in a tomb. And in the same way, as we come here on Easter Sunday to celebrate our resurrected king, we see Jesus, too, was despised by those in power. Jesus was persecuted and ultimately killed by a torn man, Pontius Pilate, who didn't really want to kill him, but succumbed to the pressures of the outside influences. And he was ultimately buried in a tomb. However, the difference is that Jesus didn't stay in the tomb. We see in verse 29 that it ends with the disciples. They came and removed his corpse and placed it in a tomb, period. Then it goes back, Mark goes back to the apostles coming back and reporting to Jesus what they had done and taught. That story ends with John being buried in a tomb, period. The story of Jesus doesn't end there. Put a comma. Because then on the third day, he was raised from the grave. He is the greater John. And we can pursue righteousness because Jesus rose from the grave. No matter what the cost is, we can pursue it because the one whom we are in rose from the grave. And therefore, if he rose from the grave, we are promised that we too will raise, raise from the grave if we are in Christ. Rich uh, Velotis and other theologians have pointed out the reversals of what took place leading up to the cross and including the cross and the resurrection. He, they point out that Prior to the cross, Jesus goes to the garden to be obedient to the Father, undoing Adam and Eve's disobedience in the garden. Adam and Eve sinned at the tree and hid, naked and ashamed. Jesus 
was obedient to the point of publicly being hung on a tree, naked, to overcome shame, to conquer shame. Adam and Eve begin in paradise, but are forced outside the gates due to their sin. Jesus dies outside the gates, but ends up in paradise because of his righteousness. Adam and Eve ushered in a curse of thorns. We see that in Genesis 3.18, where God is telling him all the repercussions of sin. He said that the ground's going to produce thorns, and you're going to have to work really hard to get the food that you need. Jesus himself wears a crown of thorns as he ushers in salvation from sin. And from Adam's side came the life of his bride, Eve. And Jesus, when he was on the cross, from the soldiers, they pierced his side and came, it from, came from his side waters. Waters of life for his bride, the church. And so the question this morning is, are you depending on yourself? Or are you depending on Christ? Are you depending on your righteousness? Or are you depending on the righteousness of another one? Are you suppressing righteousness? Or are you sensitive to the way that the Holy Spirit might be convicting you and calling you to repentance? And have you considered God's goodness? It is good news that Jesus rose from the grave. However, we need to really consider what God's goodness means for us. Because it's simultaneously the most amazing thing that we can talk about and also the most terrifying. Because if God is good, if he is the epitome, the absolute apex of good, that means no evil, no sin can be with him. And if there's even a little bit of sin in your life, there's even a little bit of sin in your past, then that means that you cannot dwell with God. You need someone else's righteousness to cover you because yours is not sufficient. And Jesus, when he was on the cross, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was killed in our place so that his perfect righteousness could be attributed to us. So that all those who call on the name of Christ can receive his righteousness. C.S. Lewis in his book, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So if you've seen Narnia, you've seen this scene. It's when uh, Lucy is being introduced to the idea of who Aslan is. And Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are sharing with them, with Lucy, who he is. And um, they say, Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Jesus is not safe. He is safe for those who have turned from their sin and are depending on him are saying, my righteousness is short. I can't do it. I, I need an outside righteousness. My resume is not going to suffice. For those who repent and believe the gospel, they can find safe harbor. They can find protection in Christ. That's the good news 
this morning. That's why we rejoice at the resurrection because Jesus, living a perfectly righteous life, could not be held by the grave. And if we get that same righteousness attributed to us, we too will not be held by the grave. Not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done in our place. Herod was frightened at the idea that John the Baptist had been resurrected and maybe coming back to bring judgment to his enemies. Herod would have been number one on that list. However, Herod should have been more concerned about who Jesus really was because Jesus is coming back. There is another resurrection that, G- that Herod should have been more concerned about, and it was Christ's resurrection because it implies that Jesus will bring judgment on his enemies. And I want to encourage you this morning to embrace the gospel, to turn away from depending on yourself, and to throw yourself on Christ. Because if you are not in Christ, then you are an enemy of God. And he is coming back. And he will bring judgment on his enemies. But the offer is extended. He says, anyone who would repent and believe. He says, I won't turn away anyone who comes to me. Anyone. I encourage you, go to Christ. If you are in Christ, if you are in the good and righteous one, you are safe. Jesus is not safe, but he's good. Repent and believe so that you may be found safe in this good Savior who has been resurrected. And we get to celebrate that this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of being able to remember what you have done on the cross through Christ. Thank you for the salvation that you have worked out. Jesus, thank you so much for living the life that we should have lived and for dying in our place the death that we should have died. Thank you for accomplishing this salvation on our behalf. Holy Spirit, apply this salvation. Help us to take appropriate next steps in light of this text. Help us to be willing and ready to pay the cost of discipleship because ultimately we will taste victory if we are in Christ. Help us as we go from here. In Christ's name, amen.